important things, Dustin. Um, wait, Joseph told me that as soon as I close in prayer, I need to go help run the coffee bar. Um, so if you see me run out, just uh, you'll know what's going on. Um, no, uh, yeah, I really appreciate being here. Um, yeah, and uh, like I said, uh, I grew up in Colorado. We both did. And I remember um, is that when I was a kid growing up in Colorado, my dad instilled in us a love of uh, old ghost towns, historic mining towns. And um, so he used to get excited when he'd find a new one, and we'd go up and we'd look at it. And um, I remember one particular spring, I was 13, I think my brother was about 15, and uh, we discovered this old survival cabin up above Georgetown, Colorado. And it was about a three-hour hike uh, off the main road. And we were really excited about that. A few weeks later, my dad comes and he says, hey, guess what? There's uh, an old ghost town of Waldorf, Colorado, just over some, some peaks by the survival cabin that you found. And so he wanted to go check that out, drive up there. My brother and I wanted to go hike back to the survival cabin. He said, tell you what, you and your brother hike up to the survival cabin. I am going to drive up to Waldorf. You just hike over a couple of these peaks and we'll meet you there. Um, and so, okay, so my brother and I did the, the, the three-hour hike. We made it to the cabin. We thought, okay, now we just got to go over these peaks. And so we went in the direction that we thought um, the town was, and we kept summiting. You know how it is, if you, how you summit peak after peak after peak. And we're looking around, and it's nothing but mountains. And we're thinking, there's no ghost town, no father, no primer gray suburban, nothing. Um, and all we could see was mountains. And then the problem is we used all our food and all our water and most of our strength to get up there. And we felt like our strength was going to give out. And so my brother wisely suggested that we just retrace our steps, go back down the mountain, and turn around. And so we turned around and, and made our way down. And I want to ask, have you ever felt like on the journey you're ready to give out? Like you're ready to faint Along the way, maybe you're coming out of a season like that. Maybe you're in a season like that right now. You know where you need to go, but you feel like you're about to give out and faint along the way. Uh, our text today is Mark 8, 1 through 10. And uh, I'm going to read this. It says, uh, Jesus says, the, the text says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, some context for this passage, Jesus had already fed 5,000 people in chapter 6, not because they were far from home, but just to show his disciples who he was. And now this situation is a little different. 
unlike the 5,000, these 4,000 would have been Gentiles. So these are people who did not have the law and the prophets and the writing. They had no hope or expectation of a coming Savior. But they had seen and heard what Jesus had done throughout their ten cities. In the end of chapter 7, they proclaim, this man has done all things well. So they followed him in mass out into the wilderness to a desolate place far from their homes. You may have heard this story before, but look at what the passage says. It says this. It says, once again, Jesus has compassion on the people. He has compassion on them because he says, they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And we need to pause there and let that, that sink in. Three days with Jesus, and they have nothing left. In those days, long journeys were common, and so people would prepare something like dried fish or some bread, and, and they would kind of think, how far do I have to go? And so these people planned out where Jesus was. I need to get to him. I'm going to listen to him. Maybe I'm going to be healed. Or I'm going to see someone healed. And then I've got to have enough for the journey home. I've got to have enough to make it back. And so they brought enough of their own resources to get them there, spend a little time with Jesus and make it home. But something happens, and, and I'd never noticed this in the text before, and I love this. So you have day one, and these people hear something they've never heard before. Maybe they hear words of life. They hear words from the creator and the sustainer of the universe, words of compassion and authority and victory and power and hope. It's day one and they have a choice. And maybe they look into their bag and they see their dried fish, their bread. Maybe they count it up. They add it up. Maybe they look at their children and they say, okay, you know what? It's going to be hard. It's going to be sparse. But we can stay one more day and we can make it home. We cannot leave now. We cannot leave hearing what we've heard, seeing what we've seen. We can't leave now. We've got to stay another day. Day two, still in the middle of nowhere, desolate place. They listen to Jesus. They hear, again, words of life, words of hope, words connecting, to their, connecting them to their eternal purpose, their destiny. Their souls may burn within them, and they see the sun start to go down. And they, again, they look in their bag. And then they look at their circumstances. Maybe they brought their elderly parents with them. Maybe they brought young children. They look into their own provision and it's almost gone at this point. And maybe they think to themselves and say, okay, maybe if, if, if the little ones just eat, maybe if I go hungry, maybe, just maybe with my own resources, I can stumble back into my village where I know there's food and I can make it. But I know this, maybe they say, I have to hear this man again just one more day. I have to be with Jesus. If I leave now, maybe I'll have more food, but I'll have less of Jesus, and I can't do that. I have to stay. And so it's the morning of day three. And they sit, and they listen to Jesus again, and they look in their bag, and they have nothing left. They've used it all. And at that point, where they were, far from their village, they have to say, we will die listening to this man. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the choice day after day? I either be with Jesus or I die on my own because my own provision is used up. Suddenly what's in their bag of provisions doesn't really matter anymore because to leave Jesus now is death. They know they're going to give out on the journey home. They know they're going to faint. And Jesus says this. He says, they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And the Greek here 
is more often translated give out. They're just simply going to expire and give out. Do you feel sometimes like if you take one more step on this journey that you're going to give out? That you're going to faint along the way? If we try to do life apart from Jesus and trust in our own provisions for our circumstances, we will. We will give out on the journey home. We will. Now, once again, the disciples don't get it yet, and they say, Jesus, we're sunk. We're out in the middle of nowhere. This isn't like before, where there's villages close by that you can send them to. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And Jesus does four things. Firstly, he tells them to sit down. I love that. He tells them to sit down, but he remains standing. Now, Deer Creek, are we ready to give out sometimes? Jesus tells us to sit And he remained standing. This is his work. In those days, people sat to listen to a teacher, much like we do today. And the fact that they knew exactly how much fish, exactly how much bread, means there might have been this kind of scramble going. And people stood up at that point and said, how much do you have? How much do you have? Well, I have a farther journey than you do. I need more. I need more. And maybe it was this frantic, what's going to be left for me? And Jesus tells them once again, sit. Sit down. Take the posture of a learner. Learn from me. See, nothing's changed for Jesus. He stays standing. Sit like you were before. He invites us to sit. Secondly, he gives thanks. The text says he gives thanks, maybe because it was tradition. But I think this, I wonder if it had occurred to anyone after the count was made, what do you have left? I wonder if it occurred to anyone at that point to give thanks. Maybe. Seven loaves of bread, a few small fish, and Jesus gives thanks. And, I, I, and, and like I said, it might, you know, it's tradition, I know, give thanks, bless the food. But I think Jesus gives a deep thanks there because after all the words that he taught that were words at that point, now he has a chance to really show these precious people that if they leave that mountain without him, they will give out on the journey. Now he really gets to show them. Without the bread of life, There is no provision. There is nothing left. So he gives thanks. Thirdly, I love it. It says that he filled them up. So he tells them to sit. He gives thanks. And he fills them up. Verse 8 says they ate and were satisfied. And again, the Greek there says filled up. As in like not even enough room for ice cream filled up. You know that feeling? That's a special kind of filled up. And that word is just like filled up. They were, he fills them up. In the midst of the desolate, desperate place, they're filled. They're filled up. In their own bag of provisions might have been just enough to get them back to their village, but now they are filled up. And lastly, he sends them out. He tells them to sit. He gives thanks. He fills them up, and then he sends them out. They followed this man on top of this mountain because of what he had done for them. They stayed with him three days at the cost of their own lives, and they left as a multitude sent out, having encountered Jesus' sustaining and compassionate power. And you know what? They did not give out on the way. They didn't. And I wish we had time to go through this bit by bit, but Mark 8 goes on to show how the religious leaders, kind of the churchy church people of that day, didn't get it either. They come up to Jesus and and ask him questions that just miss. And it goes on to show the disciples don't get it. We see them in a boat talking about how they just they didn't bring enough bread. Really? 
We didn't bring enough bread. They, have, they say we have one loaf left. Seriously? Like, that's not enough? We see a man who is blind. He's touched by Jesus. And even though he's touched by Jesus, encounters Jesus, his sight is still a little bit fuzzy. Kind of like ours is sometimes, right? Kind of like the disciples was. We've been touched by Jesus. We, we do life with him and we still have a little bit of this fuzzy vision. Really, is one, one loaf of bread isn't enough, God. Or my own provision is enough, God. We don't get it. Why don't we get it like the Gentiles on that mountain got it? Why do we still try to ration out our energy and provide for ourselves and make this journey alone with our own bag of provisions than with Jesus? You know what our problem is? It's this. I don't know if you know this, but America runs on Duncan. Right? It's probably news to some of you. Like, I do. Um, but you do. No. Uh, this, how many of you have seen this? You've probably seen this. But this, this is our problem, I think. We run on our own ability, our own strength, our own strategy. And when all that stuff fails, we look into our bag, there's nothing left. We just caffeinate ourselves and we try harder. When I was a kid, you know, we, uh, I lived in, you know, in Aurora, but they would tell us, hey, if there's ever a, a, a nuclear strike, they're going to hit Colorado first because of NORAD down in Cheyenne Mountain. Some of you might remember that. But not today. Apparently, all the enemy has to do is just take out each and every Dunkin' Donuts and America will cease to run. But it's true. In God we trust is on our money, but America runs on Dunkin' is on our billboards, isn't it? Because we think, here's why, I think here's why. Because we think that our Father is always asking us to do more with less. We think that somehow our Father is always asking us to do His will apart from the power of His Spirit apart from the life that animates our service to him, that animates our daily activity and our very being, we can't sit because we're hopped up on caffeine and activity. We can't give thanks because we think that we've done everything and can do everything ourselves. Therefore, we don't get filled up. And when we're sent out, we feel as weak and as helpless as when we came, ready to give out and faint on the journey. But now we come to the end of the chapter The last verses of Mark 8. Jesus gives us a radical call to discipleship, to follow him. Listen to his words. He says this. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a person give in exchange for his soul? In the West, we're kind of conditioned a little bit by our Greek um, background. When we hear this word um, soul, we think only spiritual. Some of us do. And so we think that the soul is the part that God wants. That's kind of the Jesus-y part, the churchy part. And when we give him our soul, or when we get saved, we think the rest is up to us. That he's asking, okay, look, I saved you, now you do the rest. You do my will. You reach your neighbors. You raise your family. You do the rest. That's what I do, at least. But that word in Greek, it really has nothing to do with this kind of Greek dichotomy of material and spiritual. And the spiritual is the church part. The material is the stuff that I do on my own. No, that word refers to life and life itself. And everything to do with life. So it says this, the text says this, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to give up all of life in the process? Surely that can't be the good news of the gospel. It says, what can a person give in exchange for his or her very life? The first part of Mark answers that question for us, doesn't it? 4,000 people came to a desolate place looking for life. 
They knew they couldn't provide for themselves, and they made a choice. They said, even if it costs me everything, even if I give out and die on the way home, I want to be with Jesus. And after the feeding, the disciples were worried because they had only one loaf of bread in their boat. But what they should have realized is that they had Jesus, the only bread that matters. Are you going on your journey with no bread? Are you worried your own resources aren't enough for this journey? They aren't. We don't have enough bread on our own. None of us do. Jesus says, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. Jesus doesn't ask you to find this bread, to find this life, to find this provision apart from him. He doesn't ask you to give out on the journey, brothers and sisters. He doesn't ask you that. Ask ourselves this. It says, the text says, what would it, what it says, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose their own soul? Ask yourself this at this moment. What would it look like for you to gain the whole world? That's a big phrase. What would it look like? What would it look like for me right now to gain the whole world? Maybe it's to have a clean house and obedient children. He doesn't ask you to do that apart from him. Maybe it's to have a better job or just to have a job or to have enough money to provide. He doesn't ask you to do that apart from him. Maybe your children, your spouse are not walking with God right now. He never asks you to pray for them or change them apart from him. Maybe it's to reach your neighbors. Maybe it's to be popular or well-liked at school. I want a wooden sign above my door that says, what does it profit a man to be caught up on dishes and laundry and yet forfeit his own soul? That would be mine at this phase in our life. But put your own phrase there. What, what would it profit you to gain the whole world and, and forfeit life itself? Is our Father asking us to do any of those things at the expense of our very life? God wants to do great things in Deer Creek Church. He wants to do great things in you. But he wants us to do those things with, with Jesus. In Mark 8, it's interesting, you follow the chapter, we see a movement from these different questions implied in the text. The first one is, what can you do for me, Jesus? That kind of got them to the mountain. It kind of switches, what can I do for you, Jesus? Maybe that sounds like a more spiritual question, but you know what? It moves to, what can I do with you, Jesus? And that's the right question. That's the question that gets it right. Not what can I do for you, what can you do for me? What can I do with you, Jesus? Do you want to know what I do sometimes? Sometimes I, I try to live my own life in my own strength with just the bread that I brought with me, just my own resources. And when I get low on that, I go back to Jesus and I get some more strength. And then I go back and try to do it on my own. Maybe I read his word and I pray. And then when I think I kind of have enough of that, okay, I've done that. Then I go out and I try to get things done for God on my own. For me to gain the whole world is to raise kids that love Jesus. It's to plant a church in Denver. It's to have enough resources and money to provide for my family. And if I try to do any one of those things, good things, apart from Jesus... Not only will I give out on the way, but I'll have forfeited life itself. And I apologize to my kids right now for trying to raise them on my own strength most of the time. Don't, feel, don't forfeit life itself. Don't do it. Sit. Be with Jesus and do the things God asks of you with Jesus. 
And maybe that can be our reminder at Deer Creek. Can we invite one another in and say, hey, are, we, are you doing that with Jesus? Because if not, we will give out along the way. As my brother and I uh, made our way down that mountain, uh, I, I became delusional with dehydration. And we found the main road, and we got to that main road, and we looked up, and we still had five miles straight up almost to get to where our father was, to get food and water. And sick and hopeless, I remember, we just sat down on the side of, the, of this road. That's all we could do. And then we saw a cloud of dust. We heard the rumble of a truck coming on the washboard service road, and around the corner came my father in that rusty primer gray suburban. We didn't have to go up to him. He was coming down to us. He pulled up beside us, threw the doors of the suburban open, and we stuffed our faces and ate and drank until we were filled up and our strength came back. And while we were eating, he said, what happened? It should have been a short trip. And we said, you should have been there. You should have done it with us. And if we would have had you with us, we would have made it. Well, aren't you glad that we have a father who doesn't demand that we come up to him? Tired, weary, no resources, ready to give out, demanding that we come up to him. But aren't you glad we have a father who comes down to us in Christ, paying for all our sin? A father who invites us still to sit with him, to give thanks who fills us up with his spirit and sends us out. What can we give in exchange for our soul? Our life, he has given us our life. Let's give it back to him with everything we do. Let's do it with Jesus and remind each other when we're ready to faint on this journey, let's remind each other to do this with Jesus. Before I close, let me just say this. If you don't have a relationship with this father who comes down to us in Jesus, I don't want to take it for granted that we all do. If you feel like you're ready to faint and give out on the journey of life, maybe you want to know more. Maybe you want prayer. You can come talk to me. Come talk to the staff or volunteers at Deer Creek. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. And let me pray now. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the bread of life, that you call us to do things. You call us to do great things, but you never, ever ask us to give out and faint along the way because we don't need to. You have given us all we need in Christ. You have given us your spirit. You have animated our service to you and given us life. Lord, I pray that when each one of us wanders and tries to look in our own bag of provisions and say, I can do this, I can make it, that you would gently in that still small voice remind us that we cannot, that we are trying to live life apart from the bread of life and that we would be a community who reminds each other of that and that you would fill us up and send us out And we thank you and praise you for your grace poured out in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.